You are listening to Down Home. The news is everywhere. An oppressive authoritarian regime has attacked a neighboring country. The world is on high alert. Nations take sides. Economic blockades were levied. But it doesn't work. The world descends into deeper war. No, I'm not talking about 2022 and what's happening in Ukraine. This is 1914. The Great War. World War I. Black Canadians felt the same urge to serve and protect their country as most did that enlisted and were shipped overseas. But for the longest time, they were told they couldn't stand shoulder to shoulder with white men. By 1916, there was an urgent need for Canadian recruits. So segregate units were created. The Black Battalion was created. The urge to serve was strong among a number of Black Nova Scotians. More than 500 enlisted, including a young Sidney Jones. I knew him as Deacon Jones, as did anyone who attended Cornwall Street Baptist Church in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s. To Jay, he was simply granddad. In this episode, Jay and I discuss his family's significant role in the Black Battalion. I'm Derek Wise, and on behalf of Jay Jones, welcome to Down Home, the Nova Scotian experience from two black men. Well, the the story of the Jones actually starts with the three Samuels, uh, Samuel Jones one, Samuel Jones two, and Samuel Jones three junior. As far as we know, our Jones family history in Canada began with the arrival of Samuel Jones from Kentucky in the USA, where he was born into slavery. He may have come as a free man, granted manumission by his slave owners, or he might have escaped slavery via the Underground Railway. He resided in different periods in Dartmouth, Cherry Brook, Preston, and Fall River. He might be the Samuel Jones listed in the Book of Negroes, the American version. His wife, Betsy, unknown maiden name, was born in Canada. Samuel Jones II, senior. Samuel Jones was born in Preston in 1820. His first wife, Martha Reed, was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1822. They had 10 children. His second wife was Margaret Elms Paris, who was born in Trachety, Nova Scotia in 1845. Hattie May Jones was the only child of Samuel and Margaret. Sidney Morgan Jones was Hattie May's son. Uh, Samuel Jones III was one of uh, Samuel and Martha Reed's 10 children. He was born in Truro, Nova Scotia in 18. 54. Uh, so that's the story of the three Joneses just sort of, uh, mm. you know, and they all had, they all had uh, children afterwards, you know, and they all named them Samuel. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a interesting trend for that generation, wasn't it? Yeah. I believe like, so. uh, yeah. Cause um, that, that was with the wises as well. Like um, there were, there were John wises in yeah. my and like there was like three generations of john and the firstborn was named john mm-hmm. which is really yeah. strange if you ask yeah. me and and um i think my father even when i was born 
they were they were because my 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 father wasn't first born so he wasn't named after his father mm-hmm. but um because i was the first born son um everyone gave him uh shit because i wasn't bruce right 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 yeah right. so i wasn't yeah. named after him right yeah so yeah. that's interesting isn't it yeah it's pretty it's pretty weird i wonder if that was like a just like a north america like a sort of implemented kind of british tradition you know with their names and maybe maybe with you know as families they just sort of did this sort of same thing i guess i don't know mm-hmm. but yeah it was uh pretty interesting uh yeah so that's the three joneses so as far as the 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 blacks go in the military, uh, specifically the black battalion, there was a call for volunteers in 1916, which uh, allowed for individuals, uh, black men, to enlist in, in local regiments in their towns if they would be accepted. Uh, despite the previous rejections and the uh, segregation at the times many black men throughout the country volunteered for duty and nova scotia provided a large number of the recruits of the 300 who volunteered 200 were not eligible due to the fact that they were employed by the coal mines so many of the men at that time they started to get better because they were wondering why they weren't allowed to join they were all healthy they were fit mm-hmm. uh, but they kept being rejected and all they wanted to do was really to fight for the country. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the military at the time, allowing blacks to join was still kind of faux pas. Like yeah. blacks were still looked at as third class citizens. Yeah, and yeah. A lot of the officers actually didn't want the blacks to sort of come in uh, almost like a strength in numbers because they didn't in their mind, they didn't want them to gain some sort of foothold into the country. It's really you know, yeah. this was just was some of the thoughts among people in mm-hmm. some of the source material that I looked at. One, which was the uh, Black Battalion book uh, written by um, Kelvin Ruck, specifically about the Black Battalion. And I wanted to read something that specifically talked about uh, the re- rejection of the Black volunteers in that particular time. For more than a century, Black Canadians have unquestionably demonstrated their loyalty by volunteer for military service. In August 1914, however, when World War I erupted, Black Canadians were treated like third-class citizens. The message that they would not be included in the patriotic and military institutions of Canada came across loud and clear. Throughout the country, from Nova Scotia to British Columbia, large numbers of Black volunteers were being rejected strictly on the basis of race and colour. Officials at some recruiting stations bluntly told Black volunteers that it was a white man's war. In other instances, they said more tactfully, we will call you when we need you. And in Western Nova Scotia, Blacks often heard, we don't want a checkerboard army. Black people in a number of provinces viewed military service in wartime not only as a right, but a responsibility. They were not prepared to accept a meek policy, official or unofficial, that rejected them on racial grounds. A struggle for base, basic human rights was beginning to take shape. So, yeah, that's 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 interesting, isn't it? Like um, the drive to otherize people of color was a lot stronger than the push for military service. Yeah. It's, Isn't that uh, something, man? Yeah, it's very sad, you know. Looking at this stuff, you're just like, damn, mm. like, you know, for wanting to do the right thing, there was so much, you know, so much until the point where they needed them, 
So they mm. had no choice. <laughs> yeah. Aquila did a project about World War One. You know, that's that's where Canada basically showed its teeth to become a nation was in World War One. Mm-hmm. And their losses in early on in the war were huge. So that yeah. probably went into the fact that they actually allowed uh you know black canadians to go into the military service because they're they're basically running out of uh young white men to to send overseas huh yeah and even the americans actually got involved like there was like some sort of immigration immigration agreement that would allow blacks to come across and even join but yet again the segregation and you know the concern of officers that always put it in in balance until certain people kept pushing for it because they felt you know the blacks could be utilized in the fight yeah. so anyway on march 17th uh, 1917 canada's first black battalion was authorized in Truro, nova scotia but not all the blacks served in uh, in the number two construction battalion there were also black volunteers who served in different combat units one being the 106 battalion the nova scotia rifles which was authorized in november 8 1915 various recruits from nova scotia came to and and enlist and because of this many white men who were about to enlist refused to do so some of the officials believe uh, the service of black men could be utilized for the cause despite reservations. So 16 black men were accepted into the battalion. One was my great-grandfather, Sidney Morgan Jones. And here's what he said at the time. The realization that 16 blacks were in the battalion uh, was an exciting development. That The fact that I, a 15-year-old boy, was one of them gave me an intense feeling of pride. And like many uh, people back then, uh, Sidney had changed his age to join the battalion. Um, so he lied about his age to, to, to meet the legal requirement. Of course, not records weren't always mm-hmm. easily found. So, mm-hmm. And they needed people. So I'm sure they were just going, you know what? Yeah. And not only for Sidney Jones, uh, he had other family in the same battalion, yeah. which was Jeremiah Jones, who was 58 years old. Right. He lied about his age, saying that he was uh, 38 because he was in, he looked 20 years younger than than his yeah. age. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was um, uh, he was remarkable physical shape. And many years after his death, he got the Distinguished Conduct Medal uh, for bravery. Yeah, uh, he's also single-handedly well-known for taking out a German machine gun, capturing both the enemy and the machine gun, making them carry it back to, uh, you know, uh, to his commanding officer and yeah. lay it at their feet. So, yeah. yeah, years later, he got awarded that medal after first being rejected because of race. So crazy, you know? man. Crazy. So, uh, so, you know, so Sydney. You know, also, it was just the spirit of the times for for people to yeah. want to fight, and it meant it was a huge thing to them. You know, yeah, it's uh, well, think about it, man. Like um, those, the first world war, the whole world was involved, and of course, the Americans came in late, as they always do. But Canada was right on the forefront because of their their connection to Britain. Uh, they were there from the beginning. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like we, we haven't seen times like that at all since, um, you know, the Second World War, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so the motivations to, to say, hey, you know, I, I want to be a part of this. 
I, you know, personally, I can't understand it really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, we're, we're a different generation, but, you know, think about it back then, you, you know, you want you, your, your pride in your country yeah, and wanting to serve and then being told you can't serve because of uh, your race and then being accepted in uh, eventually, you know, it, uh, that, that probably would have, was a huge thing. I yeah. Bet. Well, it's funny you should say that because there's another quote that my grandfather said, he said, it looked like the thing to do to be a soldier. And I sort of got caught up in the spirit of the times. So right then and there, and he didn't really, he, he was, he lived uh, and we'll get to that, but um, you know, race was still uh, a factor then. And even as the 106th battalion arrived overseas, they were seen, seen as servants for the most part, doing a lot of the labor around the camp. They, they couldn't wash and they couldn't eat until after the white soldiers had, had, uh, you know done so and yeah. these were actually stories that my grandfather because i asked him what it was like you know mm. and he would tell me these are some first account sort of things that but he just he just said uh to me i remember at the time he said it was just a sense of pride mm-hmm. and so he decided to keep his head down and just do what he was told yeah you know yeah 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 that's uh wow man like um and just to think about the danger you're going into too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but how my grandfather got there, I guess uh, his road to Passchendaele began as a teenager in Truro, Nova Scotia. Truro is a railroad hub town, not far from the city of Halifax. In, the, in these days in that town, all the kids would hang out at the station watching trains go by. And Sydney was inspired by the troops that were passing through to go into Halifax, whether to enlist or just to go into Halifax as a port city to be shipped out overseas. And so he enlisted, he got in, and then 40 days later, after being in uniform, he got sent overseas. And being a young 15, 16-year-old, whatever he was at the time, and race being a huge issue, um, he had an old kind of soul mentality of thinking, I guess, when he was over there, these are some of the stories he told me that the revelations that he had, he was, he started to watch when he was fight fighting in battle. He, he said, you know, we were crawling over, you know, white bodies and, and black bodies. And he goes, I, he goes, I realized at that time, it didn't really matter. There was something bigger that he was fighting for. Yeah. And um, you know, and that, and at that, it, <laughs> at that age for him to discern that I think was, he knew what he knew what the cause was and it wasn't about being black or white, even despite they were made to think they were inferior. He was like, the pride for him was like, you know what? I'm fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I'm fighting for my country for what it stands for. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, those times are something that we'll probably never ever experience. Uh, you know, as I look back on his life and some of the things that I was lucky to hear from him, you know, it really sort of makes up the, the man that he, that yeah. he, he was, you know? Now I know your grandfather as Deacon Jones from yeah. uh, Kowal street Baptist church. Um, did he ever talk to you about, how religion played a part in his experience uh, back back in the day, or his beliefs played an experience back? Because I know he talked about his beliefs and his religion about later on in life, but way back in that experience when he was 15, did he um, relate any of that to his beliefs? 
I think there was a moment where it definitely came into play. Uh, and I'm just speaking through him, mm. but uh, honestly, he, he was in, uh, he fought in Passchendaele. Yeah. And uh, he was wounded mm-hmm. and he got shot and his, the bullet went above his, uh, just above his elbow and it shattered his arm. Right. And um, he felt, you know, and he laid there for a while, injured and wounded as the battle went on, you know, just basically fighting to survive, like even playing dead and, you know, just laying there. And I remember him saying that, uh, you know, there was a certain faith in that he had that he was going to be all right. Now, I think that came from a spiritual way. Mm-hmm. Um because I, I think after he came back, he was wounded and his arm needed a lot of attention. He was in Truro at the time. So he was going back and forth into the Camp Hill Hospital yeah. uh, to, to get um, his arm looked at. And I, and I think at the time he veered off into not so pleasurable paths yeah. that kind of took him off, you know. And, uh, and I don't think it was until later that he sort of found God. Uh, I, I believe it was after he was uh, in the forties, after he had tuberculosis, he started to pray in a, in a re- religious way to God. And uh, you know, it wasn't long after that in his eyes that he was able to walk out of a sanatorium, mm. which his wife, uh, Amelia Jones did not. Yeah. She succumbed to tuberculosis, but he did. And from that moment on, I think he started to get more involved in giving back to the community. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think faith came to play, you know, mm-hmm. later on in life. But yeah. I, I also believe he had faith even there on the battlefield when he needed to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know about religion as a construct, but I do believe in maybe having hope and faith mm-hmm. in an outcome that is good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So. Mm-hmm. He was wounded in Passchendaele, which was one of the, the third battle of Ypres, I believe mm-hmm. it was called. Yeah. And it was the bloodiest kind of engagement. So for him to survive that, he came back and sort of tried to put, I guess, his life back together there, which quickly came together quite fast. He became a community leader. He became a Royal Canadian official. He became a barbershop operator. Uh, he went on to join, uh, become a deacon at Cornwall Street Baptist Church. And also he was the manager of the senior citizens center that they had. Yeah. That was in, was, which was, was in the structure of the church, I guess, was just an extension of his duties as mm. a deacon. And he, you know, he had, as you know, with your grandmother, Edith Chandler, they had their own, they had prayer meetings and yeah. different things. And so faith, yeah, became very important. And I think it was just always important. I think something called him. Mm-hmm. I think he knew what he had to do. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think, you know, faith pertains to life in that sort of way, too, that you're on the right track. Yeah. Despite what, uh, you know, you... Uh, you're going to find along the way. Yeah. In your conversations with him and later on in life, did he talk about the importance of that time in his life? What, like how it, how it structured him as a man when he came back from, from uh, world war one, you know what I mean? Um, well, you know, it's funny. My, my grandfather was uh, a quiet, quiet man, very yeah. strong. Mm-hmm. very stoic yeah. kept things uh, close to the chest uh, 
the only thing I can remember, I think he was affected by it. If I could look back in hindsight mm. and at the time, I mean, he was, he was 73 when I was born. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, we had a pretty cool relationship in those young years. I mean, but it was more about funniness and, mm. and everything like that. But otherwise what I observed, he was just very quiet and his presence, his presence is what I was in awe of. He was yeah. just a man who sat back and observed and he didn't really talk about that stuff much mm-hmm. until later on in life when it was just him and I, yeah. when he started to sort of open up and, uh, you know, talk about his, uh, his vulnerable things in life. That's when we really started to become close. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's when he told me those things in the sense of, he didn't tell me he, I think he wanted me to see how I was supposed to be going forward. Mm. You know? So I observed him yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, I can remember being in the hospital when I was five years old and, um, you know, he would often come visit me. Sometimes I'd wake up and he'd be there. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we'd have a conversation. I was five. I spent the year in the hospital and, but he would, he, we would always talk about different things. He, he'd ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and, uh, you know, and then years later, say 16 years later, it was me talking to him in the hospital, you know, yeah. we spent the last two years in the hospital. And mm-hmm. I think that's where he started to open up, but he, I just watched in awe growing up because he just con- he just contained to his business of right. being involved in what he was involved in and didn't really let out too much emotion. He was very, he was just very thoroughbred. There was just yeah, something yeah. about him, you know, yeah. and uh, whatever it was that may have bothered him through and throughout his life, uh, he was able to carry and, mm-hmm. and just live with and, and accept. Yeah, and yeah. I think that, I think, some circumstances that shaped him as a man where he didn't really have a close uh, relationship with his, with his mother. Um, Mm. He didn't know his father. So Mm. I think he learned by example and maybe fighting in world war one and coming back and, and having a family of 11 kids and then watching, you know, your, your, the love of your life pass away. Um, Mm. I think all of that just made him want to, take care but he took care at a distance yeah 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 i wonder how uh close he was with his brother that he went off to war with man uh they were half brothers i don't know if they were super close Uh, yeah that's some history that i've yet to discover but yeah uh, uh, especially the age difference yeah (laughs) no literally (laughs) old enough to be his uh his his, uh almost grand yeah well father definitely yeah, almost grandfather. Grandfather, yeah. <laughs> he, there was forty-three years age difference. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I want. Did they enlist at the same time? They were half brothers, right? Yeah, they did. I guess at the very that, same time. Yeah, in the hundred and sixth battalion, I guess that yeah. area mm. was was looking for for people, and that's when he he yeah. My grandfather quit school in grade eight. Wow. Hopped on the train and went into mm. Halifax and enlisted and got in. Um, and yeah so there's a movie there somewhere man <laughs> yeah well there was a documentary that i can't seem to find i saw a clip of it one time a few years back on youtube but i can't seem to find it i was looking yeah. for it but it is a movie <laughs> kind of there's a story to oh, be told yeah there. definitely man and the thing like i said uh 
I think he evolved into giving back to the community. Um, he had a barbershop in the Camp Hill Hospital, which was also a veterans hospital. So okay, him yeah, being yeah. involved, he started to give free haircuts to all the veterans that were staying there that were, you know, healing, like even in the Second World War, which mm-hmm. he did serve in as well, just as an officer sort of um, watching the docks and the the Halifax dockyard he was like a special constable so that was kind of his involvement but he didn't serve in battle but uh just because he was involved in the Canadian Legion Mm -hmm. you know some of the the veterans from the first world war stepped up again to offer Mm -hmm. their services but not of course they were old but just as yeah they're older man diplomats kind of thing yeah giving but given that uh you know that privilege Mm -hmm. I guess Yeah. yeah And I didn't know too much about the Black Battalion at all. So you've given me some information here today. I knew that they existed. I knew the time frame, but that was it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know much about uh, the Black Battalion at all, man. Yeah. Yeah. I knew, and I, I didn't know that your grandfather uh, fought at Passchendaele. That's a, that Passchendaele is a turning point for Canada as a nation. Yeah. To, and which helped them win the war, arguably. Yeah. You know? Passchendaele was a reason why when uh, Germany finally sat down at the the peace talks table, uh, Canada had a seat at those tables. I don't don't think they had much influence, but Mm -hmm. a big portion of the reason why they had a seat at the table table was Passchendaele. So, you know, your grandfather in that battalion had um, a role to play in Canada becoming a nation in and of itself and not being, you know, beholden to, to the Brits any longer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big thing, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, even in some of the research that I did and even some of the, the conversations we had later on in life, um, you know, it was a huge, it was a huge thing of pride for him, you know, Mm. and he felt, he always felt lucky you know, even after being injured to, to survive it, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, he, you know, and I'm honored to even know that that's where, uh, you know, he sort of became a man and, and, um, you know, he, he was able to just sort of acclimate into the community and take that warrior spirit and still, still give it to the next generations. I really feel fortunate. And even years later, as I'm, you know, almost turning 50 years old, uh, I, I, he was, he truly was my mentor, you know, Mm. and, uh, the lessons that I'm learning from investigating his life and our sort of family tree, you know, I'm starting to see some things that I never quite saw before, even, even when I had the opportunity. So yeah, to, to be able to look back at our elders and, uh, you know, gain strength and knowing what they went through is very important to, to be able to discover and at least tell some of that story in the way that I can, you know? Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm breaking new ground, breaking new ground. You have been listening to Down Home. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, 
on a high plateau from the one down below to the future of the funk getting lost in the flow contact with the spot my gex now it's time to flex with the force from the soul reaching all aspects getting deep no time to sleep as you reach your next phase laying it all on the line new trail start to blaze it's a fire inside the song breaking new ground from the breakdown Boy, just kicking it live A connection so strong Transcribe with the vibe Like magic prescribed Only to see the perfect blend Like a diamond in the rough Ready to drop a perfect gem It's time to This is a love manifesto. It was a bit of a quest though. Going back in time to a time of retro. Active in the attic, mind acrobatics. Flipping out, tucking in, beginning again. What I need to win forever to the end. A perfect blend of that something that will mend. A broken hearted, blackened heart garden. Still in bloom from the shadows of the cave. Mastering self so I am no longer called a slave. Thoughts of Rumi. A love for lust, an invisible child on the cusp, sipping from a cup that has now runneth over, seeping into roots deep until he learned how to get over. Understanding, sometimes I get dizzy. It's a song for the horn, a melody for truth in tune with the dawn of an early morn. That's when I rise to seize the day, finding hope and strength in the memory of those that paved the way. Walking through storms of origins unknown so that flowers would bloom one day in the month of May. Mother, may I please pledge allegiance to them A rose from concrete, black on both sides Most deaf in fields of endless days Swallowing pride as freedom floated by In the bluest of the sky They ran in the night so they couldn't be seen Through the underground toward a tunnel of light To still have a dream Kings and queens free from shadows and valleys of death If we take a knee, does that mean we have to take our last breath? It's 8.46, there's a pain in my neck There are so many secrets still untold unburied deep beneath within the depths of residential school steps excuse me mister we're already so close to the edge we've conformed to the norm but our lives don't seem to matter can't you hear the power of people who just want to know purpose and privilege and maybe one day touch the rung of the ladder and not be lynched and hung we are victims of this system a legacy built from our own labor food for thought taught put on a plate saved hate as the flavor we all gotta eat but we just seem to taste the same behavior let's scrape it all clean make way for a new canvas by doing better we can still have a dream painting a new picture something sore eyes have never seen you know what i mean because i know what i mean and it's been tough for us to still be in segregation stuck in isolation locked down for over 400 years of mass incarceration trauma passed down to each generation i guess we just gotta hold on strong waiting in waters singing our secrets within negro spirituals standing up for our civil rights not to feel wrong a call to arms free from change of sorrow we can't let yesterday still become our tomorrow so i throw my hands in the air so there's no shot of force from a blast for this colored outcast i just have to ask are we still a threat now that we all have to wear the same mask <laughs>